the same position Pastor Zach has for six years before moving across the street over here. And let me tell you, I am passionate about um, meeting Jesus. And I'll tell you why. It's because I know he changes lives. He changes lives, and I know this for a fact because he changed my life. And I know that he can do that. So I'm passionate about that, and I'm also passionate about college students. My college experience was amazing. Amazing. I don't want to tell you where I went. So let's just say it starts with an S and ends with a turling. And, and my experience while I was there was amazing. I learned to walk in faith on my own to experience who is this Jesus that everybody talks about, to grow in him, to experience people from other places, from other experiences. And it's my hope that you too have that same sort of college experience. Truly hope so. And this morning, as we look into God's word together, I want to share something else with you that I think, I think all of us need to hear. So let's, I want to start with a story. There was one year in between seminary in the spring and in the summer, what do you do? Do any of you have that question sometimes? Do you go home or do you stay where you are? So I decided I would go home and it was to work for a farmer, a rancher. And if you're like me, you've never done anything like this before. So everything about it is new. Day number two. We are moving little baby calves from this place over here to this place over there, and they're loading them in trailers. And I get to drive one of the trucks as we move these. So I'm driving down the road, you know, farmer style. So I've got the hand up here and the hand on this. And when you pass someone, do you know what you do? Oh, yeah, you guys got it, you know. You know, you're waving to everybody, waving to people. And then as I'm driving along down this road, I look to this side over here, and there's this guy. And he's up on his porch. Now, he's a ways away, but I can tell he's looking at me. He's doing this. And I'm like, woohoo! You know, I'm, I'm doing this. I'm a cowboy. Woohoo! He's doing this. But as I look at him a little more, he's really intense. And he is doing that. So I look in my rearview mirror. You know what's behind me? On the road that I just went across? There are cows standing on the road behind me. Apparently... This is the universal sign for your cows are falling out of the back. And as I look back there, there's more than one. In fact, there's only a few left in the trailer. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So I go out, like, not sure what to do. How do I get him in? There's one cow standing down the road just a little ways, and he's got these big brown eyes, and he's just staring. He doesn't move. And I go over, and I, like, push him to move to go in. And he just he doesn't move, and I'm like, oh. But luckily, the next vehicle was on its way, and they said, there's no way you're getting those in. Close up the trailer and go back. So, oh, my goodness. So now the conversation when I get back is, how did this happen, right? And I am certain that the person who put the cows in smacked the side of the trailer, and to me, that means go. And the person who helped put them in said, I do not do that. I said, you did? And then I said, don't you think that means you can go? Yeah, so we never agreed upon this. Whose fault was it that the cows fell out of the back? We had to get to a point where we said, look, we just can't agree on the details of what took place. But you can rest assured it was his fault. Today, I want to look at a scripture that I think will point to us a truth, a truth that all of us can trust. 
all of us can agree with, you can trust God. I think we can all come to an agreement on this, but let's, let's lay a foundation first before we look at this. Before we say that we, in this place, can trust God, I think we have to define who God is. Because really, this word means a lot of things to a lot of different people, right? So what do we mean when we say God? In fact, I would say how you answer this question, this will impact all of your life. It will impact the rest of your life. It will impact your eternity. In fact, the decisions you make, the little ones and the big ones, all based upon the answer to this. Who is God? Now, I'm not just talking to followers of Jesus when I say that. I'm talking to all of us. So when we say God, we don't always mean the same thing. Now, I don't want to spend too much time in apologetics, the defense of what we believe, right? Um, but I, I do want to share just one little piece from something I've been reading recently. And I really think this discussion about who God is, is is one that all of us should be having. See, currently I've been reading Is Atheism Dead by Eric Metaxas. And in the 1960s, um, our society was asking a question about God. Maybe you've seen this cover right here off of Time magazine. Is God dead? Have you guys seen that before somewhere? Is God dead? So this is April of 1966. And by the way, society seems to give an answer to this. Any guesses what that answer is? Yes. In fact, it seems to kind of go as if, well, really, if you stand against this, you're silenced. So if you're in the science world, it kind of grows and grows how much less that you are published or allowed to speak. And by the way, this grew from into all areas of our culture. This, the answer to this question really just became yes. And if you believe something different, then it didn't follow the narrative and you, well, you were, what should I say, silenced, I think, is the best way to say that. But Eric Metaxas poses this question. While this was posed in 1966 and the answer appeared to be yes, he says that quietly... In the background, over the years, science, more and more scientists, historians, archaeologists are answering this question with no. God is not dead. In fact, more and more scientists seem to be believing that it points to a creator. It points to there being God. Uh, students, I want you to hear this. Science and your faith are not incompatible. They are not. The world wants us to believe that, but it's just not true. And Eric Metaxas, I, like I said, we, can't, we don't have time to go into this, but he talks of the science that has really proven how our faith and our beliefs and science and all live together as one. In fact, doesn't it make sense, because God created all of reality anyway, that those would live together well? Um, so I would maybe even say, gone are the days where you can just say, oh, I just don't believe. In fact, science and our faith both point us toward, yes, there is a God. But who the source is for this God is crucial. How do we come to understand who this God is and who is he really? Um, now, we know because we're here in Central Christian College Chapel that we're talking about this from a Christian perspective. And where do you think we should look? 
to find out who God is. And to his word, right? If we don't learn from the right source, we will learn incorrect things about God. Get this. There's a professor who at the beginning of every semester gave questions about God, and the students would answer these questions about God. And then later, he would give questions to the students to answer questions about themselves. And when he would put those two together, over 90% of the students would answer the same things for God as they do for themselves. Do you get what's taking place? We're painting God in our own image. God happens to like what we like. He happens to vote the same way we vote. He happens to be passionate about what we're passionate and likes what we like. It's Well, it's really because, well, maybe that's why we get bored with God or don't really care because really what we've done is created a boring God that's just, really, he's just us. He's not this amazing being that we should be in awe of. So, as we jump into God's word this morning to ask the question, who is God and why can I trust him? I think there's this warning we have from that example and many others that we have to be careful that we don't want to just make God in our own image. So, this question, who is God and why can you trust him? We're going to, if you could grab your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 33, um, I recently read this book by John Mark Comer. It's called God Has a Name. And the whole book comes from Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. And I have loved this book. I have thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, And we're going to go to this section to find out why you can trust God and who is God. Because in this section, God, well, he describes himself. What better place can you go to find out who God is than from him describing himself. We're going to go right to the source. In fact, Exodus 34, 6 through 7, is the most quoted scripture by scriptures. Does that make sense? Scripture inside of itself quoting back to Exodus 34, 6 through 7, it's the most quoted inside of scripture. This is where God describes himself. In fact, most recently on our Thursday morning Bible studies, uh, We recently looked up a number of these as we're studying together. And hey, men, you're invited if you want to participate. Thursday mornings, right across the hall, we're studying. We start Titus tomorrow. Do you want to hear the time? 6 a.m. Oh, my goodness. I know it sounds ridiculous. And if you ask me tomorrow morning when I set my alarm to wake up, I don't want to come either. But when I'm here, I guarantee you it's worth it. So, men, you're invited tomorrow. But this scripture, Exodus 34, 6 through 7, not only is it the most quoted, within the Jewish tradition, it's one of the most studied and understood as well because they look at it a lot. It's kind of like Exodus 34, 6 through 7 is the Jewish version of the Christian John 3, 16. This this is going to the source. Now, I want you, this is not going to be where I'm just asking a rhetorical question. So I'm going to ask you to tell me about God, describe God, and I want you to answer back the description of God for me. Because we're we're saying who God is is crucial. So let's hear, I want to hear from you, who is God? Describe him. Who is God? King of all kings? He's just? Oh man. He's a ruler? God is love? Yeah, 
oh man, there's a lot of descriptions about God. When I first started to write down these descriptions, someone said, if if you just said these things, then you got it wrong. I want to share these with you because this is kind of what I said. I said, God, God is omnipresent. God is omniscient. God is omnipotent. God is awesome. Those are the words I was using. And then the question is asked, is that really even how God describes himself? Interesting, isn't it? So let's look at this together. To really do this, let's jump just before Exodus 34, 6 and 7. So let's go into Exodus chapter 33. If you're new to the Bible, Exodus is just the second book in. So go to chapter 33, and we're going to start at verse 12. And this is a really interesting story taking place here. Moses and the Lord are interacting together. And in verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me to lead these people. This is as they've left Egypt, right? Yet you have not let them know whom you will send with me. You said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. And here is God's reply to Moses. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. So God's going to go with them. He is a present God going with them. As he says this with Moses, then Moses turns back to God and says to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send me from here. Don't you love that? God, if you're not going with us, I don't even want to go. I only want to go where you are. Verse 16, how will anyone know that you are pleased with me, with your people, unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from the other people on the face of the earth? He says, God, you're the one that makes us who we are. So you have to go with us. And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked me, and I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. Then Moses said this, get this, he's asking this to God, now show me your glory. Oh, isn't that amazing? Now show me your glory. Now glory here doesn't really mean show me your fame. Show me, show me your great credit for who you are. It really means show me your presence. Show me your beauty. God, I want to see this. Verse 19, and the Lord said, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord in your presence and I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my what? You cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Don't you think that God is much more awesome or amazing than we ever imagined? We can't even see God and live. Verse 21. Then the Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock when my glory passes by. I will put you in the cleft of the rock and with my hand, I cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. So God says, look, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to place you in the cleft of a rock, and then I'm going to come by like in a cloud, in a mist, but you can't see me, so I will cover. And then at just the right moment, just so you can see me as I pass by, I will remove my hand, and you'll get really just a glimpse of who I am. We're getting close to where I really want to land. Look at chapter 1, I mean, verse 1 of chapter 34. Then the Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the ones you had before. By the way, I think this is funny that God tells him to chisel these out. Because remember, Moses came down 
had the stones and the people were worshiping an idol, and he throws them and they bust apart. It's like I picture God saying, like, you broke them. You make new ones. Bring them up and I'll write back on them again, but you broke it. You make new ones. I picture that. And so he says, you chisel new ones. You come up. Verse 2, be ready in the morning and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you, he says, or be seen on the mountain. Not even the flocks and the herds may gaze in front of the mountain. So what did Moses do? He chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones, and he went up on Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him, and he carried the two stone tablets in his hand. Then the Lord came down in a cloud, and he stood with him, and he proclaimed his name, the Lord. So here we are at these two verses that we're headed towards, and God says, I want to know you. I want to see you. Show me yourself, and here is the interaction between God and Moses on the side of the mountain. Starting at verse 6. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sins. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished, He punishes the children and their children for the sins of their parents to the third and fourth generation. Isn't that an amazing encounter of God and Moses? Notice how it starts. God gives his name. Now, in the English, we put on there the Lord, right? And is yours all caps, the Lord, the Lord, right? So this is is a, well, the name is the name God gave of himself. Now, Here's where I struggle with this, is because if we go back far enough, the name of God, the Jewish people decided not to say the name of God because there was a fear of misusing the name or saying the name of the Lord in vain, so to not use it. And so there are many who say, we don't even know how to say the name of the Lord. But here's what I'm going to do this morning. I'm going to say the name of the Lord, and even if I have it wrong, I think there's something about God giving us a personal name that's valuable. In fact, many times in Scripture when we see God, the title used, the Hebrew word is Elohim. And by the way, this is really a title. It's not a name. Elohim is even used of false gods. There's times where it says of the one true God, Elohim. But there's other times where it says, don't worship these, Elohim. It's a title. It's not a name. And there's also other ways. We use El Shaddai as a title for God in Hebrew. And by the way, El was the supreme God of the ancient Canaanites. And Shaddai really just means like even more. So you have this supreme God of the Canaanites, but then El Shaddai, God is even more. Do you see how these are titles? But here, with Moses, he gets personal. He says, I'm not just going to tell you that I'm God. I'm going to tell you my name. And he says this, Yahweh. And I might be saying it wrong, but he says Yahweh. Yahweh, and he says it twice. Imagine if your professor said this. You might want to mark that. That's going to be on the test. You might want to mark that. This one's important. Circle it, because this is big. That's why God repeats it. Yahweh, Yahweh, he says. So God gives a specific name. And I think part of what it points out is he's relational. Because in the ancient Near East, uh, a name 
It was more than just a title. It was really an identity. And God is telling Moses, here is my identity. God is not just a force. Get this, God is not a religion, and he's not just some sort of system that man made up. God gets personal with Moses. He wants us to know him, and he says, Yahweh, Yahweh. Then he declares what he is. So he says, the Lord, the Lord, the what God? Compassionate. He declares, as he describes himself, he says, I'm compassionate. Compassion, by the way, um, it's the Hebrew word about how a parent would feel about their children. There's an element of sympathy in the midst of this compassion. It's an element of understanding. When we first brought our kids home after they were born, we didn't bring them both home at once. We brought one home, and then two years later, we brought another one home. And my wife had spidey senses. So my wife is not a morning person. If you told her there's a men's Bible study at 6 a.m., she would tell you there is no way. If I went, I'd want to really just beat everybody up there anyway. So I'm not going. She's not a morning person, but get this. She could be laying in bed, and there could be the slightest of sound. And these spidey senses that she has for her kids, she would sit up, poof, she's ready to go. Do they need her? Does she need to go help them? Was that them? Like, it's amazing. I could literally shake her to try to wake her up, and she'll tell me to leave her alone. Like she will not wake up, but she has these spidey senses. God is compassionate. He has this sort of compassion for you like a parent does for their children. I want to read to you a little section in here where John Mark Comer describes this in his life. Honestly, he says, I'm not compassionate. And to tell you the truth, I'm really not a kid person. I'm quiet, I'm orderly, and I'm, well, neat. But my three kids melt my heart to butter. The other day, Moses, my six-year-old, asked if we could wrestle. Ours are hard for Mo, so wrestle becomes wessel. I was in my office answering an email and said, sorry, Moses, not right now. Daddy's busy. But then he said, if I kiss you, then could we wrestle? Five seconds later, we were on the floor laughing and kicking around like kung fu masters. When it comes to my kids, I'm compassionate. I feel a deeply rooted love and affection for Jude and Moses and Sunday. And this is just a glimpse, a faint echo of how Yahweh feels about his kids, about you, and about me. God is compassionate. And by the way, this is a feeling word. God has this kind of feeling, this compassion, this love for you. So the Lord is compassionate, and what is he next? He's compassionate and gracious. The Lord is gracious. Now, this is an action word. The idea here is that God is, I don't know, a helper, a rescuer. He comes alongside. Um, we actually learned about this a little bit on our Thursday morning Bible study group. I want to read to you from Jonah. In this little section of Jonah, it's near the end. Do you remember the story of Jonah where he fled? He said, I'm not going there. And he heads the opposite direction. He gets in his ship. But this is now where he confronts God and God's grace. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong and he became angry. Here's what he's mad about. He just went up on the mountain. He went up to the edge of town and he waited to watch for the town to be destroyed. Burned up. And it wasn't destroyed, so this made him angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? 
This is why I tried to stall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God. That's the whole reason Jonah went the other way. And you know what God did? They repented and he forgave. And he says, I knew that about you. I knew you were compassionate and I knew that you were gracious. God also, as he describes himself, he says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, he's slow to anger. Now, literally, this is not slow to anger. In Hebrew, this really is the idea of um, long of nostril. Isn't that weird? But see, if you can picture this, when you get mad, you kind of picture, or you kind of purse your lips a little bit, and your nose kind of flares out. Can you picture it when you get angry? God's the opposite. Not flared nose, really long. He's patient. In fact, um, this really is, slow to anger really is a good um, description of that. Now, it doesn't say that God does not get angry, does it? He actually does get mad, but he's not quick to get angry. That is not his first response. He doesn't just lose his temper and fly off the handle. In fact, he goes on to say that he's abounding in love and faithfulness. Abounding in love and faithfulness. This really is more about a steadfast, long-term sort of thing. I think for us, this is an important one. Because we live in an era, and by the way, this isn't a knock on us. This is just, just where we find ourselves, right? This is when we live and where we live. We live in an era where everything's pretty quick, and we want quick response, or no, I'm leaving, and I'm not coming back. Or I'm, We want quick, instant gratification. But God in this is in it for the long haul, to the end. God's faithful. He won't abandon you. He's faithful to the bitter end. God is slow to anger, and he's abounding in love and faithfulness. But this next part, this part right here is probably the part where we say, yeah, but tell me more, because what is he doing with these kids? He's punishing them? But before we get there, notice that he maintains love to thousands, and he forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. This explains the scope of God's love. You see, he gives his love is to the thousands upon thousands. It's not just to a few, but it's to thousands and thousands. And he forgives wickedness, which wickedness really is all kind of bad behavior. And rebellion is the breaking of the law, and sin is missing the mark. So he's kind of he's engulfing them all and says, but God is willing to forgive all of those. He maintains love to thousands upon thousands upon thousands. But we really can't. We can't miss that he does not leave sin unpunished. Literally, he says, by no means will clear the guilty. Does not leave sin unpunished. Did you know I really think deep inside all of us want a God like that? We want those who are guilty to really, we don't want the guilty to go free. We don't want the rapist just to be let go and say it doesn't matter. We want People to be held accountable. And God says, I will not leave sin unpunished. God is just, is what he's saying. And don't forget, what he has said is, forgiveness is available. He forgives wickedness, sin, and rebellion. But it's that idea of understanding. I want to read to you another quote from here. There are a lot of people, he says, who don't want forgiveness. 
Some because they deny they are sinful. After all, the Western secular worldview that we grow up in essentially denies human sinfulness. The idea that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that each of us is born bent, that something deep in the core of us is being warped out of shape, this is out of step with our time, a hangover from a religious tradition that the world wants to desperately move on from, a kind of cultural heresy in our new post-Christian world. The Western world's blind faith in, our, in politics, education, and the next killer app to usher in our own godless utopia is hopelessly naive at best. And because our society denies that all have sinned, it's forced to blame somebody else for the evils in the world. Listen to talk radio for about five minutes. It's nonstop blame shifting. The right blames the ACLU, illegal immigrants, the Muslims, the left, religion, unsophisticated folk from small towns and rural communities, and hedge fund managers. Whatever the issue, the economy, terrorism, healthcare, it's always somebody else's fault. This ongoing denial is deeply fracturing our society and even, most so, more, sorry, even more so to our relationship with God. If we refuse even to admit we're sinful, then we can't receive Yahweh's forgiveness. Forgiveness is like a gift. You have to reach out, you have to take it, you have to open the box, and you have to say yes to it. You see, God, Yahweh, is a compassionate and gracious God. He maintains love and he forgives wickedness, but we have to come to him and ask for forgiveness. Okay, so now this part right here. Have you wondered about this? The last part, he punishes children and their children to the third and fourth generation. Uh, God makes it clear in his word, numerous places, that we are only punished for our own sin, not for someone else's sin. So there must be something else taking place here. The first part of understanding this is that sin has consequences. Your and my sin has consequences for the people around us. So me, as a parent, my sins have consequence for my children. Right? So if I do things in my home, such as have an anger issue and beat them, it will have an impact on my kids. There will be consequences to the third and fourth generation and so on. So there's natural consequences of sin. But the second part is that sin runs often in our families. Have you noticed that? Often we have the same difficulties. I think when we say the, the phrase, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, we're saying that same idea right? So someone in a family has a particular personality trait or something going on, and someone says, oh, their kid's doing that too? Yeah. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree, does it? We're saying the same sort of idea. The main idea is that God will continue to punish sin. So if I have an anger issue, and it really come, comes from my dad, he could punish my dad for his anger issue, and just because I have it, I'm not off the hook. God's going to punish me for my anger issue too. And if my son now has it, he will punish him too. Because God's ultimate goal is to remove that sin. He wants it gone. And he says, I will punish it. I will remove it until it's totally removed from the family. Does that make sense? So get this. If you could imagine a scale, right? And on one hand, on the scale, you put God's love. You guys remember how much his love was to the 
thousands and the thousands, right? And then over here, he says, by the way, sin to the third and fourth generation. Do you picture the way this scale begins to tip? God's love is to the thousands and thousands and thousands. And he says, watch out, though, because sin has consequences. And there will be punishment for sin. But the third and fourth is like an obvious. And by the way, generation is not even in the original Hebrew. It's trying to help us understand to the third and fourth. God's love is amazing. His forgiveness is amazing. And I think what we see is that you can trust God. Each of us can trust God. We know because he described himself to us. God's story from the beginning has been to us about how he loves us. Remember that story of the cattle trailer and we just can't come to an agreement on really what happened? Let me tell you, there's so much about God that is mysterious. We can study our whole lives to get to know him more and more. But you can leave this place this morning knowing with a certainty that you can know who God is and you can trust him because he describes himself to us. You see, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are not different gods. Have you ever wondered why? Did Jesus come along and come up with something new? more of a grace message, more of a forgiveness message? He didn't. Do you see it from the beginning when God describes himself for the first time? He says to Moses, I'm a compassionate God. I'm a gracious God. I'm a loving God. I'm a forgiving God. I'm slow to anger. Doesn't that sound like the exact same thing? We can know who God is and we can trust him. You and trust who God is. But I want to challenge you before we leave this place this morning. God is seeking you. He's relational. But my fear is this, that we're too busy. We're too busy maybe even to notice. So can I challenge you with this? Would you try waking up five minutes early? Whatever time you already have your clock set for, just do five minutes earlier. Get ready just like normal. And then you'll have five minutes, five minutes to spend in his word. And then talk to him about it. Talk to him about what you read in his word. And if you don't know where to start or what to read or even how to go about this, find a teacher, find a coach, find a friend who loves Jesus and ask them, how would you do this? I understand that God loves me and that I can know him and that I can trust him, but can you help me? So that's my challenge to you. Five minutes early, because you can trust who God is. Would you please pray with me? God, I want to lift up these students to you. Thank you for the chance to look into your word this morning. And God, would you just continually remind them of your truth, that you love them, that you're compassionate and gracious toward them, and God, that you forgive sins because you desire a relationship with us. God, I also ask for courage for these students and for a passion that they would be willing to seek after you, to listen to you, and to follow. And God, we thank you for who you are. And thank you that you are slow to anger, but you are abounding in love toward us. Thank you that while we're sinners, you are gracious enough to forgive us of our sins. And we thank you for that. God, as we leave this place, may we receive the hope that comes from your truth. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.